Good morning. Good morning. I will let you all know ahead of time that I am recording these, so they'll be available later, but i just let you know in case there's any feedback, so if you don't want your voice on a recorder, so no, I'm just, just letting you know. Uh, it is really wonderful for Karen and I to be back and see familiar faces again and, and be with you folks. Karen and I have looked forward to this for a long time. Even had a few show up that weren't here last time, but we won't mention any names. Um, grateful for that. I want to explain right off the bat that the whole purpose of this gospel meeting or the whole theme of this gospel meeting, I know that since we were here last year, there's been a lot of, lot of issues physically. I know that people have been dealing with cancer and other struggles. Um, know that there's been a lot of that sort of thing going on. I know that you have been hit hard with various troubles and trials and tribulations and especially the health of a lot of members and your loved ones. And so, just want you to know that Karen and I, over the past year, have not been immune from some of those sorts of struggles either. I don't think anybody is that's part of living on this planet. But we know how difficult it can be some days to try to walk by faith and not by sight. We know how difficult it is uh, not to let the devil discourage us and not to let him allow us to give up. So, it has been a, it has been a blessing to put together this particular gospel meeting, basically pulled together out of uh, some sermons that I had preached before. But the whole purpose of this gospel meeting, it's got one focus in mind, and that is to encourage us. It's to revitalize our faith, to refocus us on Christ, to get us to understand that victory that is ours and God's amazing love for his children and the blessings that are ours in Christ. So that is, that is kind of the, the bottom line or the theme of this particular gospel meeting. Life can be hard down here. Uh, the world can beat us up. The devil can beat us up. It gets tough sometimes. And so this gospel meeting is entitled by the numbers. God's loving grace and provision by the numbers. And what I've done is taken some sermons and some lessons that are connected to numbers in some way or another and put them together for this meeting. The theme of the meeting is from Psalm 135, I'm sorry, 139, 5 and 6, and 17 and 18. And that passage that is our theme passage for this gospel meeting in Psalm 139 verses 5 and 6 and 17 and 18 reads as follows. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. How precious, verse 17, also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. The totality of God's love and blessings are just overwhelming. He says, if I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. I have to wonder if perhaps the psalmist, when he says, I am, when I awake, I am still with you. Some of the hardest times that we have. When we lay our head down at night and it's just us. In the darkness, we have time to think and we have time to process and sometimes that's when we get the most discouraged. So, again, I want to begin this morning with Romans. I love Romans chapter 8. It's entitled All or Nothing, this morning's session. My favorite chapter probably in the entire New Testament, at least in the epistles, is Romans chapter 8. And I want to begin actually leading up to that in Romans 4. 
Please take out your Bibles and turn to Romans 4. We've got a lot of wonderful things I want to share this morning. The book of Romans is all about this incredible, unbelievable, irreversible hope that we have by faith in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans is about. This incredible hope that we have. No matter what may come our way during this short-lived little stay that we have here on this planet. That hope. And when I'm talking about hope, I'm not talking about a hope-so hope. I'm not talking about, well, I hope it rains tomorrow because it's really been dry. I really don't have anything to base that on, but I kind of hope it does. That's not what we're talking about. When the book of Romans uses the word hope, it's using it in a no-so hope. I know this is going to happen because God said so, and I can trust him. It is a no-so hope, not a, well, I hope so type of hope. The word hope in the book of Romans is used 17 times in 16 verses. There are more occasions where the word hope is used than there are chapters in the book of Romans. 17 times in 16 chapters in 12 verses. The first two I want you to look with me about this hope is in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read a rather lengthy segment here, but I want you to get a grasp on this hope. In Romans 4, beginning in verse 13, it talks about the promise of God. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise, notice that's the third time in four verses he's used the word promise, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. God's promise is for sure. We often talk about, well, you can take this to the bank. We can take God's promise to the grave and beyond, no matter what we face here. This promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's the God we have. And so what did Abraham do? Verse 18, Abraham, who's the father of Saul, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed. Contrary to hope. There was no earthly reason for Abraham to believe that this was going to happen. But Abraham's life was not based on earthly reasons that something was going to happen. His hope was based on the promise of God. And so, it moves on. And it says, He, verse 18, contrary to hope, and hope believes, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. No matter what Abraham saw, when he saw his own age, when he saw the age of his wife, when he saw all those physical factors, that this promise made no sense, you know what he said? God said it. I believe it. That's where my hope is. He believed God no matter what he saw. So, verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He didn't say, well, you know what? Here's my age at 100, and Sarah is the deadness of her womb, verse 19, and I don't know, you know, I love God, and I want to trust God, but, eh, I, you know, it's so, that's not what he said. He said, you know what? 
This is what God said. That's what my hope is. And I don't care what I see. I'm trusting God. And guess what? When we have that kind of hope, God rewards it. Did God reward Abraham? Did God take care of it because Abraham said, I know God's going to take care of this. I trust him. No matter what I see, I trust him and God's going to do it. Guess what? God did it. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Abraham was considered righteous because he said, I'm trusting God no matter what. And God said, okay, you trust me, watch this. That's my paraphrase. But God took care of it. And that's what this hope is. Look, look, you know, when this was originally written, there were not chapter and verse divisions. So chapter 5 and verse 1 flowed right along from chapter 4 in verses 20, verse 25, all the verses we've talked about actually. Therefore, and we know what the therefore is, therefore, it is there to connect what he's about to say to what he just said. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. What do we rejoice in? We're standing by our faith in God's grace. Are you grateful for God's grace this morning? Amen. I sure am. I'll tell you what. And he said, because God has extended this grace to us, we rejoice in what? The hope. We're going to trust God no matter what, because God has shown that he is trustworthy no matter what. He has brought about his plan of salvation. He's given us his grace. The most that the devil could throw at that plan could not change it. Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God always keeps his words. So guess what? We rejoice in this no-so hope. K-N-O-W. We know it. Of the glory of God. You hear to, I'm here to rejoice this morning. I'm not just in Kosciuszko because of a gospel meeting. Okay? I'm not just here to teach this morning. I'm here to rejoice because I can count on God. This is the hope I have. If God was willing to do this for me, as we're going to talk about in the sermon, if he was willing to provide his son for me, then I know no matter what I face in this life that God's going to keep his word when this body goes into a place like that. I can count on God. He's never failed to keep his word. That's what this hope is all about. He says, not only that, as if that weren't enough, verse 3, but we also, here we go, church, glory and tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What does he say that our tribulations do? He says these are what cause us to trust God more and more. Listen, if we never had any problems that were bigger than we are, we'd never have to trust God. Why would we? If we never had a problem that was bigger than we are, if we never had a problem we couldn't handle on our own, why would we even bother with God? Why would we trust Him? What, what's the point? We, we got this. And so, he says, we know God keeps His word. We glory in tribulations knowing that this is, this is a process that involves hope. Just as the Apostle Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, 
that the fire is there to refine us. And just as James would tell us in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that the problems are there to perfect us, so too in this passage the Apostle Paul informs us that the struggle is there for purpose. The struggle is there to strengthen us. That's what he's letting us know. Because this rock-solid and God-given hope we have in Christ Jesus is enough to carry us through anything this earth throws at us. That's why we have this hope. That's how we see it unfold. I don't have time to go into all the verses I'd like to. I'd like to keep you here till about 4 o'clock this afternoon, then we can start the worship service. But there's so many encouraging. One of my favorite scriptures, if you're taking notes, especially in the Old Testament, that, that the same powerful hope is Psalm 46, 1 through 3. It's an incredible passage. Look it up when you get home about how our God is a very present help. He is our strength and our refuge. There's just some incredible passages there. But I've got to move on because of time. We note that the word hope would occur another six times in three verses in Romans 8. Those are Romans 8, 20, 24, and 25. Romans 8, 20, 24, and 25 the word hope occurs six more times. Moving right along. Once again, in Romans chapter 12, verses 11 and 12 say this. Romans 12, 11 and 12. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now, as you look at that, I want you to notice something. They're not rejoicing in hope because everything's going good. Look at the sentence again. Look what they're into. Look what's going on in their lives. They are in tribulation. He tells them to be patient in that. They are to continue steadfastly in prayer. Obviously, it's things they need to pray about. Okay. While they're in this tribulation, during that time, they're to be rejoicing in hope, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, not lagging in diligence. Sometimes we as human beings, when we're carrying this weight, we're carrying this load, say, you know what? I'm, just, I, I, I'm too tired from this burden. I'm, I'm just not going to serve anymore. I, you know, I used to serve. I'm just not going to do it anymore because I'm just, I can't do this. What does he say? He says, while you're in that, while you're in tribulation, be patient. You keep on praying, but you don't stop serving. You don't stop being fervent in spirit. You don't stop rejoicing. Listen, you cannot allow when you are going through a tough time, somebody to steal your joy. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And when you give that joy to somebody else, you allow Satan or somebody else to take your joy away, you've lost your strength. Our, our hope and our strength is in our joy and rejoicing in the Lord. That's where it comes from. Think about some of the things you're going through in your life. If you allowed this to all be taken away, if you said, I'm not going to church anymore, I'm not going to focus on the Lord, I'm not going to focus on all He's given me, I'm, not going to focus, I'm, just, going to, I'm just going to dwell in, in what's going on in my life in this mess I'm in. How, much, how joyful would that be? You'd lose everything, right? But the joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah told us in chapter 8. Same thing that we're being told here. Don't let somebody steal your joy. You keep rejoicing in hope while at the same time patient in tribulation. The final five times we see the word hope in the book of Romans... We see it in four verses in Romans 15. And I am going to turn there. Romans chapter 15. We see the word hope in verses 4, 12, 
13 and 24, and I want to read verse 13. Romans 15, 13. It's in 4, 12, 13, and 24. Listen to this. Now may the God of hope, you serve the God of hope. We often say God is love, 1 John 4, 8, right? God is love. That's, that's his essence. It's not just something he does, it's something he is, okay? But that same God who is love, Paul says in this epistle to our first century brethren in the Church of Christ in Rome, he says he's the God of hope. That's what he does. That's what he is. He provides hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you. Well, you know, I, I just, you know, well, I think I got hope. The Bible says it. No. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. You need more peace in your life. You're in a spot in your life where you need a little more peace. Here's where it comes from. It comes from this God of hope by hanging on to that hope, by not surrendering it, by not letting our tribulations rob us of the joy that we have because we can trust God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, I don't want you to just have hope. I want you to abound in hope. I want you to have so much hope in your life you can't all keep it all in. That's what abounding means. I want you so full of it it spills out everywhere. You know, my cup runneth over. We're to be a vessel that is just spilling over with hope because we can't contain it all. And this joy and this peace that we have because we trust God. Now, you say, well, that's, that's a lot, but, you know, there's some things going on in my life. And believe me, just because you stand up in front of people and you wear a suit jacket on Sunday, there's, I'm human too. There's things going on in my life too. We, we all have them, okay? It's a part of, of living here. Amen. So... What I want us to know is this. The Apostle Paul, I want you to think about Paul. We, we think of him as this super apostle. Well, let me tell you what. If anybody knew a thing or two about tribulation and distress and needing hope and joy and peace, it was the Apostle Paul. He went through things some of us can't even begin to understand despite what's going on in our lives. And I don't mean to belittle, please, please. I don't mean to belittle anything that's going on in anybody's life. I don't. But I'll tell you what, I don't know what it would be like to be on a shipwreck and be a day and a night in the open sea. Not many of us can say, hey, that piece of cake, I've done that. We don't know. And that's just one of the little ones that Paul went through. I've been on a cruise and I've eaten too much. <laughs> I usually eat too much no matter where I go, whether it's a cruise or not. Land, by land or by sea, it doesn't matter. <laughs> A day and a night in the open ocean and, and sharks and not knowing if anybody's going to go over before you're baked or, or fish bait or a night and a day, 24 hours. You know, sometimes we say time crawls when you're sitting in a doctor's office. Yeah, it does. It does. I know it does. I'm human too. A day and a night in the open sea? Really? I'll sit in a doctor's office. Thanks. At least there I got a chair. And air conditioning. And air conditioning. I want you to understand that if anybody knew what it was about to be abounding in and being overfilled with a death-defying hope because of what God had already done for him, it was the Apostle Paul. Listen, turn with me to Romans 8. Now we'll get to the chapter. We've done the introduction. Now we'll get to the chapter. When Paul struggled to do the right thing, sometimes we struggle to do the right thing, right? And we still mess up. Okay, if you're like me, you do that. 
Sometimes we struggle to do the right thing. So did the Apostle Paul. And he failed in his efforts. Despite his trying to do the absolute best for God he could, he failed in his efforts. Despite his best and bravest efforts. And he knew that when that happened, God was right there for him. God was right there to take his hand. God was right there to forgive him. God was right there to work with him. God was right there to forgive and uphold him. There is no condemnation for him or for any of us who are in Christ Jesus, who when we sincerely try to do the right thing and we fail, if we are willing to repent, get back up and tell God, I blew it that time, God is right there. There's no condemnation. There's nothing on the record when we fall, when we are legitimately trying to do the right thing. Paul said that. In Romans chapter 7, I know I said 8, but we're getting there. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 13, running all the way through Romans 8 and verse 4. Paul's talking there and he says, The very things I want to do, I, I can't seem to do. And the very wrong things that I don't want to do, that's what I seem to do. And he says, down toward the end of the chapter there, in, in chapter 7, in verse 24, he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this? Who's going who's gonna to help me out of this mess? I'm trying to do the right thing, but I'm failing, and I, I, I'm so mad at myself because I'm so weak, and I want to do the right thing, and, and I'm trying, and I just fail miserably, and what a wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from this? And then he says in the next verse, verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God. And in Romans 8 and verse 1, he says, There is now... Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's his point? His point is this. When I try and I fail, my God is there to pick me up. But it doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning to Romans 8. Paul knew that whatever he was suffering or struggling through, church, we need this, whatever he was suffering or struggling through, was an infinitesimally small price to pay in comparison to that immense and infinite and, and inconceivable glory that awaits the faithful child of God who sees it through. How do I know that? That's exactly what he said in Romans 8. Look in Romans 8 verse 16. Not only when he failed did he know God was there to pick him up, but he knew that whatever he was struggling through was a terribly small thing in comparison with the infinite glory that the child of God would enjoy after seeing it through. Romans 8.16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's not future tense. It's not that you're someday going to be God's child. That's present tense. That we are, right now, right here, children of God. And if children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Do you understand what that means? Everything that belongs to Jesus Christ belongs to you. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. His inheritance in heaven is our inheritance if we're in Christ. And if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Christ suffered, and we as, as children of God doing God's will, we're going to suffer. There's going to be some hurtful things going to happen to us, no doubt. But look what Paul says in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He said, it's not even on the same planet. The things that I'm going through and these, these afflictions, these sufferings of the present time, in... in um, the book, uh, in Corinthians, he would say these light and momentary afflictions. Paul being a day and a night on the open sea, that was a light momentary affliction compared to what God's got waiting for us. 
And Paul knew that. Not only those two things, but again in Romans 8, Paul knew that when he was so weakened and beat up by the world that he didn't even know what to pray that God would help him out. You ever had those nights? The roof's caved in, the floor's let go, it's just been one of those, it's been one of those inconceivable, unbelievable Job days. And, and you, you just get to the point where you say, I, I am just too broken to pray. God, I don't even know what to say at this point. You ever had one of those days? Paul had one of those days. Paul knew those days, and look what he said. Romans 8, verses 26 and 7. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. That's three beautiful promises out of Romans 8, but it doesn't stop there. Paul knew something else. Paul knew, and this is, this is one of the most quoted probably verses in Romans 8, but Paul knew that no matter what disaster came his way, no matter how bad it got, no matter how dark it got, no matter how black it got, no matter how awful it was, he knew that God could bring good out of that situation. Very next verse, Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know. It doesn't say we think. It doesn't say even we hope. Not even in the biblical sense of a no-so hope. It says we know. Do you see that? It's not a question. It's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. Paul was not going to discuss this point. He didn't have to. We know. Then what does he say? That all things... Wait a minute, Paul. Does that include the bad things? Paul says, what did I say? Well, yeah, I know you said all right. I know you said all things, but Paul, there's some bad stuff. Paul says, all things. We know that in all things. Or we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful passage? Amen. Romans 8 is loaded. Romans 8, you see why it's one of my favorite, probably my favorite in all the epistles, okay? And this, this is what it led him to conclude in verses 31 through 36. Let these words wash over you like waves at the ocean. Paul concludes by saying this. What then shall we say to these things? So what are we going to respond to all these things I've just told you, he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? I got another question, Paul. How about saying this? And I don't mean to, to add words to the Bible, but if God is for us, what difference does it make who's against us? Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't, and then Paul says, I'm going to tell you how much God is for you. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That title, Romans 8, all or nothing. Notice the word all here. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, which would be this one, who also makes intercession for us. Do you know that the Bible says that Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for us? Hebrews 7 and verse 25. That's Jesus' purpose. He came to this earth to die for us, but he lives now. There's a purpose to Jesus' life. It is to intercede for you and I. What an awesome God. That's what he's doing. 
He's at the right hand of God, makes intercession for us. Now knowing that, knowing what God gave for us, knowing that Jesus is there to make intercession for us, then Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Shall any of these earthly trials separate us from the love of God? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I want to stop right there. Paul knew a few things about persecution. Paul knew a few things about distress, and famine, and nakedness, and peril, and sword. You know that insurance ad that's on TV probably is over here too. We know a thing about this because we've, we've seen a thing or two, or however that goes. You've seen the commercial. Paul knew a thing or two about what he's about to tell you because he'd seen a thing or two. He'd seen a few things that you and I have never seen and we don't want to. And so take it from him. He'd been stoned several times. He? he had. We're going to get there too. I want to go through. This is what I want to do. I want to go through a list, and if you're taking notes, don't have time to visit every one of them, but I want, to, I want to take a list and look at it and consider just a few things he had undergone prior to writing this. When Paul writes this in Romans 8, there's a few things that have happened to him previous to this that I want us to think about. He didn't just grab a pen one day and by divine inspiration write, and all these things were more than, it didn't work that way. I want you to look at what he went through before he wrote this. He knew a thing or two, because he'd seen a thing or two. Okay? Let's take a quick journey. And if you want to follow along in the book of Acts, go ahead. Let's start in Acts 13. All prior to writing what he did in Romans 8. I'm going to fly through these chapters. Not going to read much. But in Acts 13, think about what he went through. His first missionary journey... He and Barnabas were persecuted so bad, they were run out of town. They were run out of Pisidian Antioch simply for preaching and teaching the biblical truth, Acts 13. Acts 14, 1 through 5. They're in the town of Iconium. And there is this mob of unbelieving Jews there, Acts 14, 1 through 5. And they poisoned the minds of the townspeople against him. It'd be like me coming up here to preach, and you've got a bunch of people that, that come up here with you know swords, clubs, and guns. We're not going to let him in there. You don't know what kind of a violent criminal this guy is. That's, that's what he underwent. See, we can't even begin to fathom real-life situations like that. But this mob of unbelieving Jews poisoned the minds of the townspeople against him to the point that a lot of them put forth what the Bible calls a quote-unquote violent attempt. A violent attempt to torture and stone him. In the city of Lystra, Acts 14, he was stoned, just as you brought up. In fact, he was stoned. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how thoroughly he was stoned. Okay? His enemies were chasing him. His enemies chasing him from town to town. They were serious about putting him to death. They weren't just going to mark him up a little bit. They were going to kill him. And so, they follow him and they stone him. And his body is so mangled and beaten up and opened up in blood and probably broken bones and wounds and scars. His enemies are convinced he's dead. Now that took some convincing because their whole mission in life was to do this to him. It wasn't that he had a few scratches. It, it isn't like he fell off his lawnmower. Okay? 
They dragged what they believed his corpse out into the desert, out into the wilderness to rot. They were thoroughly convinced they had done their job. So beaten up and bloodied and bedraggled was the Apostle Paul. They dragged it out to rot in the wilderness. I want you to watch something here. I want to read this one. Acts 14 beginning at verse 19. says this. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. He was such a mess and mangled and beaten, they were convinced he was dead. Grabbed his feet and dragged him out of town and dumped him in the wilderness. Which probably left its fair share of scars too, if they dragged him. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. When they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Ionium, Iconium, and Antioch. I want you to think about that. He goes back into the very town where they'd stoned him. What does he do when he gets there? Well, that's it. I've had it. God isn't protecting me. I'm a mess. Look at my body. I've still got open wounds and sores and scars and my bones are broken. I'm having to limp around. That's it. I'm done with God. No, that's not what he did. Guess what he did? He walked into the, wherever the, the disciples were meeting and he strengthened them. Look what he says. It says, verse 21, when he preached the gospel of that city, made many disciples. They returned Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the impact? Here's Paul. Probably only a few days, maybe a week at most, from being so bloodied and bruised and broken that his own adversaries thought he was dead. And he walks into where the disciples are and he says... And maybe, you know, they didn't have doctors like we have today, and he's probably still got wounds and black and blues and maybe a limp. Who knows? He'd just been stoned that bad. And he walks in and he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you suppose that had any power? I'm telling you, that man drags himself in there, bloodied and all that, and he drags himself in there, and he's telling me, look, let me tell you how it's got to be. Through many tribulations, we must enter the... You know what? You're going to have to go through some things. That's his message. You're going to have to go through some things while you're here. But you know what? God's worth it. Would that impact you? I would be sitting there with chills going up and down my spine. You know what? I'm here this morning to share Paul's message out of Romans 8, and we need to pay just as much attention to it as those disciples did, because it's still true. It's the Word of God. God is still every bit as in control and powerful and willing to bless His children. Yeah, through many tribulations. We've got to go through some things to enter the kingdom. Yeah, no doubt about it. Let's talk about some other things he went through real quick. At the beginning of his second missionary journey, he had such a bad fight with a fellow Christian co-worker in the kingdom that they parted ways and probably never worked together again. Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. Ever been through a church war? Yes. They hurt. Bad things are said that never should be. People's feelings are hurt in a way that you look back six months later and say, oh man, I can't believe that happened. It breaks your heart, breaks your spirit. Paul had such a fight with a brother and fellow co-worker in the church that they probably never worked together again, at least as far as the sacred record is concerned. Paul knew that. He went through that. What else did he go through? You say, well, isn't that enough? We haven't scratched the surface yet. In the Macedonian city of Philippi, he and Silas were seized in Acts 16 and dragged into the marketplace. They were seized and dragged into the marketplace. They had their clothing, I mean literally, 
grabbed them and ripped off them. Not, hey, you want to take your jacket off so we can beat you to death? A mob. That, that's a lot of people. This wasn't four big guys. This was a mob, a crowd. And they ripped the clothes off of Paul and Silas. You know what they did to him? What they do to him? Beat him. With what? Beat him with rods. Acts 16. Beat him with rods. They didn't just, you know, wail on him. They had baseball bats, if you will. Or something similar. It hurt. Oh, Oh, can't imagine somebody beat. I can't imagine 50 people showing up with Louisville sluggers and taking it out on me. That's what Paul went through. I don't want that to happen to me either. Some mornings it just hurts to get out of bed, doesn't it? <laughs> As we get older, grayer, balder, whatever, right? It just hurts to get out of bed. I can't imagine having these guys show up and do this wailing on me like this. That's what he did. And later that night... They were imprisoned in the inner dungeon. Roman prisons supposedly had three layers. It was kind of the open air part. There was the windows up. There was the rooms on the ground level that might have a window. And then there was what we call the dungeon. Paul was in the dungeon because the jailer had received this order to guard them securely. So having received that, Acts 16, he puts them in the dungeon. Not only does he put them in the dungeon, here's these boys that have been beaten with rods by an angry mob. And he puts their feet in stocks. And these stocks were instruments of torture. They, were, they, they had your feet apart at such a wide angle as they were locked in that you couldn't lay down because it would put your hips out. And you weren't comfortable sitting up because your legs were out like this. This was after they'd been beaten on. What are they doing at midnight? What are they doing at midnight? Singing psalms and hymns of praise to God. Why? What? Was Paul out of his mind? No. Paul knew that this life's going to beat you up. But he never lost his focus on God. And he trusted God through it all. And he knew that God was still worth his praise no matter how dark the times were he was going through. Amen? Did God reward Paul's faith? fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I know, Paul says, 2 Timothy 4, he's 7 and 8, he says, I know there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me and for all who have loved his appearing. Did he say that? He said, you know what? Ain't nothing here that even compares, no matter how hard it gets, with how good God's promised to give it to us. Paul says, I ain't letting go of that for nothing. What an encouraging thing. But we're not done there. Told you I'd get away with this one time-wise. <laughs> He's a victim of mob violence to his friends in the th city of Thessalonica when they fled to Berea under the cover of darkness and he preached the gospel there. Acts 17. He goes to Athens. He's grieved by their idolatry. Chapter 18 of Acts. We find him in Corinth. When he gets to Corinth, he finds a Christian couple who've been kicked out of their home in Rome because they were Christians. And there in Corinth, Acts 18, 1-16, he encounters rejection and opposition and blasphemy for the truth he taught. He's seized and dragged before the local authorities on trumped-up charges. In Acts chapter 19, we see him in Ephesus. And again, same old story, different town. He's facing the same sorts of persecution and rejection. Now listen. While he's there in Ephesus, it is believed by many commentators it was around the spring of 57 A.D., that's when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Spring of 57 AD, he wrote 1 Corinthians and he sent it back to Corinth, those brethren that he had just departed from there. It'd be like me going back to Cleveland in three months, sending you guys a letter saying, hey, how you doing? That's what he did. 
Okay? Look at Acts 20 and verse 1. After going through everything we've talked about in Acts 20 and verse 1, it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. He goes into Macedonia, into that region, verse 2, where it is believed that he wrote what we commonly call 2 Corinthians in the fall of 57 A.D. And if you know anything about the 2 Corinthian epistle that we have recorded, you know that in chapters 11 and 12, he goes through this incredible list of things he's been through. He talks about the labors, the stripes beyond measures. In other words, he'd lost count of how many times he'd been scourged. That's what it means, stripes beyond measure. Can't even remember how many times they've whipped me. Frequent imprisonments, life-threatening situations, beating, stoning, shipwrecks, day and night in the deep. He said, I've had these life-threatening perils from every person in every place, in every location I've gone, whether land or sea, city or country, in the church or out of the church. That's 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12. He chronicled there the endless toil and tiredness and the long and sleepless nights and the hunger and thirst and just this incredible, incredible list of stuff. In 2 Corinthians 11, he's gone through. And then, as if that's not enough, in chapter 12, he talks about this terrible personal physical infirmity he's got. We call it thorn in the flesh. And he begs and he pleads, God, he says, God, will you please take this thing away from me? God said no. He prayed three times. God still said no. Repeatedly prayed, God, just like Jesus in the garden. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Paul said, I prayed three times. Paul knew how to pray. He was a man of prayer. He's telling everybody, I pray for you constantly. Paul was a man of prayer. He prayed three times. God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What's he telling him? He said, Paul, let me tell you something. You're going to have to go through this. It's going to have to stay there. But I promise you, I will be with you and I will carry you through it. Yeah, you're going to have to go through the fire. But I'm not going to leave you. I'll, my power is made perfect in weakness. Your weakness, that's where my power comes in to carry you. I want to prove to you I'm going to carry you. And I'll prove to everybody around you I'm going to carry you. You keep the thorn. My power is made perfect in weakness. What did Paul say? Therefore I delight in persecution, tribulation. Paul says, guess what? God is going to use me and work through me. How awesome is that? God is going to show that he is real. Folks, listen. We can try to preach to people. And, and words are words. And everybody's got an opinion. And everybody's got something to say. The power of evangelism. The power that we have to show people our God is real. Is oftentimes how we respond in our darkest moments. Those who have no hope when they lose loved ones or these bad things happen to them, it doesn't mean we walk around giggly with a smile on our face, but this hope that we have and this peace that we have is what sustains us in our darkest times, is what shows people our God really exists. And this is the kind of power He has. It's not just something we're, we're preaching to you different than other churches or groups. This is who our God is, and this is what He has given me. That's why I can walk through the valley of the shadow. What did He say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Even death is just a what? Shadow. I have a shadow here. Can my shadow hurt you? No. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Death can't hurt you. Your boots can. But not their shadow. <laughs> the shadow 
He said, that's all it is. It's darkness, yes. It'll creep up on you, yes. But it's a sh if you're in Christ, if you're holding God's hand so tight and you, God ain't going to let go of you. You got to let go of him. If you ain't letting go of him, God says, I got this. Yep, there's going to be some darkness. There's going to be some valleys. There's going to be a thorn. But you walk with me and I'll take you home. And you show the world I'm real. That's what this is all about. So much more I want to get to. I'm going to run about five or six more minutes anyway. What I want us to understand is this. Back in Romans 8. I, I, I love Romans 8. I could preach on it all day. It is at this precise point in Romans 8, after all we've seen that he went through, this is what he says. Look at verse 37. I believe this escapes the reality of most Christians. After everything we've chronicled that he went through, Paul writes this. After he says, shall tribulation, a distress, a persecution, a famine, a nakedness, a peril, a sword. We go through these things on a daily basis. Verse 36, he says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. I want you to understand something about that phrase, more than conquerors. The only time it appears in the whole New Testament. In the Greek New Testament, that phraseology, more than conquerors, the only time it occurs... It's a combination of two Greek words. Here's what they are. One of them is Nikao, N-I-K-A-O, Nikao. It's what we get Nike from. Nike is the Greek word for victory. The little Nike sneakers, that little symbol, the V. That's the Greek term for victory, Nike. It's Nikao. That's half of the compound word, Nikao. Nikao, victory. That is the word that John uses throughout Revelation. Remember in Revelation 2 and 3, the churches where he talks about whoever overcomes, it's whoever nikaios, whoever gets the victory over these things, overcomes them. And he uses that word nikao, John does several times in Revelation, by itself. But Paul here in Romans, it's the only place that nikao is put with another word, a compound word, to mean something. And it's more than conquerors, even though there's those magnificent promises in John and Revelation about he who overcomes, he who nikaios, he who gets the victory. And, and Revelation 12 talks about this victory that God has got. Paul takes it up a notch. In front of the word nikao in the Greek is the Greek word hyper. Hyper, we know what hyper is. We have children and grandchildren, right? We know what hyper is, right? The Greek word hyper means over or more than. Like grandkids that are hyper have too much energy, right? It's a hyper, right? Paul uses the word, in all these things we are hyper nikeo. We are over and above conquerors. We are superior conquerors. In what things, Paul? Well, in trials, distresses, and, and all of these things he's listed, nakedness, persecution, all of those, in all these things we are more, we are hyper nikeo. It's like the Golden State Warriors just won their second world championship. Okay? It's like them showing up to play your kids or grandkids' second grade boosters basketball team. Who's going to win? Oh, wait a minute. I'm not done yet. That's not Hyper Nikeo. Hyper Nikeo is when the Golden State Warriors show up to take on your kids or grandkids' second grade boosters team and only one kid from that team shows up and he's got a broken leg in the flu. That's what it means to Hyper Conquer. Paul says in all these things, listen, this is not a promise for the sweet by and by. Don't miss this as we get ready to close class. This is not a promise for the sweet by and by. This more than conquerors, this over and above hyper super conqueror, in all these things, in these shipwrecks and perils and the thorns in the flesh and the valley and all this stuff that Paul went through, 
That's not a promise for the sweet by and by. Is there going to be all those things in heaven? Is there going to be perils and persecution and nakedness and sword? And, is that going to be in heaven? If it is, I don't want to go because it ain't going to be any different in here. Those, this isn't a promise for the sweet by and by to deal with up there. This isn't something we're going to get up there. Paul says, this is for the dirty here and now. In all these things that are right here, right now, in your daily life, we are more than conquerors. More. Hyper-conquerors. Hyper-Nikeo. Through Christ. Who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul says, verse 38. Listen, if Paul could be persuaded after everything he went through, we can be persuaded in our lives, don't you think? Paul says, I'm persuaded. I know that neither death nor life. Death. Death itself. Doctor says you got a week. Paul says, I know. I am persuaded. If Nero takes my head off tomorrow, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, not, not a death sentence, not anything that this life can throw at me, Romans 8.38, neither death nor life nor angels, good or bad, nor principalities nor powers, not the government, nor things present, nothing present in my life, Paul says, nothing that's in my life today, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing the future holds. You suppose he was saying that while he was paddling around out there in the middle of the open sea for 24 hours? I wouldn't be surprised. He's singing at midnight in a jail cell after being beaten within an inch of his life and putting an instrument of torture. Yeah, I can see Paul saying the same thing out in the water, can't you? Wouldn't that make sense? I don't know that he was, and I'm not adding scripture, but it makes sense. He says, nothing in my life today, nothing present. Nothing Satan can throw at me tomorrow, nothing future nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Our Lord, if you are in Christ, I know life gets tough. I'm in Christ, and I go through a lot of the same things you do. Paul did. We all do. We're human. Satan's powerful. But if we are in Christ, we are promised that as long as we hang on to Him, nothing present, nothing future, Nothing demons can throw at us. Nothing can separate us from God's love and He's walking through it with us and holding our hand. Satan tried, and we're going to talk about this in the sermon, Satan tried with everything he had to thwart the plan of God that was in place since before the foundation of the world. Satan tried to destroy God's plan of redemption for man. All up through the Old Testament. He finally has Christ crucified or, or, you know, goes through that whole process. And I have to think in my own head that the day that Jesus Christ was crucified, maybe, maybe Satan thought he'd won. He must have been some wild when that tomb was found empty. Amen? <laughs> Not one word of God's promises ever failed. Not one. And he promises us, if we'll hold on to him, he'll keep every word. Don't we have an awesome God? Amen. That is our Bible class. When you leave here today and you go forward, you live as more than conqueror or you're missing out on what God wants for you to have in as far as His peace and His joy. You let your Father hold you close no matter what you're going through. And He will. It's up to you how close you allow Him to hold you. But boy, does he want to. Hang on to God.
be more than conqueror.